The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you have gathered us here this morning where we may take a few moments to reflect upon your word. We pray uh, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would plow the fallow ground of our hearts, and that you would plant your word deep within, and that you, uh, by the outpouring of your spirit, would produce much fruit in our lives to the glory of the triune Lord. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to this uh, inaugural chapel of the spring semester, and uh, I suspect that uh, some of you, as you walked in, looked up to the podium and with great disappointment in your heart saw the academic dean up here rather than the president, uh, as the chapel schedule indicates. Nevertheless, uh, our uh, beloved and esteemed president wasn't able to be here, and so I was asked to stand in his stead and to uh, bring us uh, a brief address. One other brief comment is that uh, our president would have undoubtedly brought you an address uh, from the Psalms, but I know that there are other books in the Bible too, and so I thought it would be good if we looked into the New Testament. Uh, So what do you say we take a look at Mark chapter 2, just don't tell President Godfrey, Uh, Mark chapter 2, and let's read uh, verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. And uh, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say uh, to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, We come here to one of the earlier texts uh, in Mark's gospel, uh, where we find, I think, a very familiar story to us all. It is, of course, the account of Jesus healing Uh, the paralytic. 
And in this particular case, I suspect it's usually common for readers of this text or for those who hear uh, this message preached or perhaps even for those who study it to focus attention upon those who bring the paralytic. I can remember in my earlier unreformed days where I was wont to watching uh, movies that contained violations of the second commandment. Uh, as a child, uh, I saw, you know, this one story of the life of Jesus uh, where the people were digging through the roof. And for those of you who are older and know who James Ferentino is, who played Peter uh, in the movie, Peter was all upset because he's saying, hey, quit digging through my roof. You're tearing up the house. Uh, and that is large in part where a lot of the attention focuses upon. Now, I don't want to dismiss the importance of these four willing friends and their faith uh, to bring their uh, paralyzed friend to the Lord Jesus. But one of the things that we find here in the opening chapters of Mark's gospel is that Mark is discreetly uh, challenging many of the purveying views as to who Jesus was. He was challenging their views by discreetly showing that someone greater than all of the Old Testament institutions was present. Okay, and in particular, uh, I think that this whole account occurs in a sense, not perhaps visibly in the shadow of the Herodian temple, but certainly ideologically in the shadow of the Herodian temple. Why and how is this the case? Well, when we take a look at the narrative, we have, of course, approached it in terms of Jesus coming to a home in Capernaum. We're not precisely sure if it was Peter's home or not. But nevertheless, he entered the home and he began to teach. And the house became overwhelmed so much so that the crowd thronged and massed at the door so that there was no more room. And here, these four friends carried their paralyzed companion on a litter, and they saw that there was no way that they could somehow cut a path through the crowd. And so they did the natural thing, and they looked for any particular angle by which they could somehow place their friend in the presence of Christ. And so, as we read in the text, they dug through the roof. They dug up likely the tiles and the thatch so that they could lower their friend before Jesus. Now, as you can well imagine, there was perhaps an initial sense of disappointment. Because here, uh, these four men go to great lengths to dig through the roof and to drop their friend in front of the Lord Jesus. And what does Christ respond with? He says, son... Your sins are forgiven. Which I can suspect, perhaps initially, was a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, in the greater scope of things, I'm sure the man lay there paralyzed and thought, okay, well, well, thank you, Lord. I'm appreciative of that. But, you know, I don't mean to be, you know, a beggar with a stick, but uh, I think my friends lowered me here so that you would heal me. I mean, you know, they went to a lot of trouble so that they would heal me so that I could rise and walk. But yet I think Jesus says what he says, quite obviously, for a reason. 
Uh, often this is the case with my own peculiar habits and practices. I always like to tell my wife and my children because they doubt my actions. I say, trust me, there's a method to the madness. Sometimes there's not. I mean, you know, I just say that so that they think that I know what I'm doing. But in this case, Christ knows what he's doing. Because as he says this, your sins are forgiven. The scribes begin to murmur among themselves. They say, how can this man say, your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. And they accuse him, perhaps in their hearts, of blasphemy. Now, on the one hand, we think that what Jesus says is perfectly normal and understandable. Well, of course he can say that this man's sins are forgiven. Why? Well, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. It's a perfectly natural thing for him to say. But in terms of the scribes, you have to take a moment to step into their shoes to look at this situation from their perspective, if only but for a moment, to appreciate why it is that they would think that Jesus was blaspheming. In this first century context, beloved, there was one place, one place in all of the world where you could go to receive the forgiveness of your sins. It was at the temple, and in this case, the Herodian temple. And it's there at the Herodian temple that you would have to go into the, uh, the outer court there with the marketplace and either bring an animal or purchase an animal. And if you were too poor, then you would perhaps maybe purchase a dove. And then you would have to bring that sacrifice to the priests so that they could then offer sacrifice so that you could then walk away knowing that your sins had been forgiven through the priesthood, but ultimately by God himself. There was no other place for you to go. So now all of a sudden, here is this essentially young Turk, this young man... You know, they say he was about 30 years old. I think sometimes uh, we think that 30 is old. It's not. I mean, I remember visiting China one time, and they said, oh, in China, for the most part, and historically speaking, we don't celebrate birthdays until you're 50. Well, why, why until you're 50? Well, because you haven't done anything. There's nothing to celebrate. <laughs> I mean, when you're five, what's there to celebrate? When you're 50, you've maybe accomplished something. That perhaps captures a little bit of the a mindset as to how they would look upon this 30-year-old man and they say, who does he think he is? He's not a priest. We're not at the temple. What gives him the right? Who gives him the authority to forgive somebody's sins? And so, in one sense, we can understand, I think, how natural their response is. They think Jesus is blaspheming. And so Jesus, aware of their murmuring, whether perhaps because he heard it under their breath, or perhaps because he was able, uh, through the power of the Spirit, to discern the thoughts and inclination of their hearts, he asks the pointed question, which in a sense brings the method to Jesus' madness, to bear, which is easier to say. 
your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Well, quite obviously, from the vantage point of those gathered about Christ, we know the answer to that question. From another vantage point, as we who read the text, in a sense, we say, well, we know what's going to happen. You know, it's kind of like, you know, going to go see Titanic. You know that the boat hits the, you know, the ice cube and it's all over. <laughs> and it's kind of anticlimactic. But here in the text, those people gathered about Jesus did not know what was going to happen. In one sense, he was laying down a gauntlet that a number of those people in that room probably thought, oh boy, has he backed himself into a corner. Because, of course, the scribes know, well, surely it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. But what about saying, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So on that day, that paralyzed man received a double blessing. Not only did he receive the forgiveness of his sins from the very Son of God, God incarnate, Emmanuel, But he also received the restoration of his body, the healing of his paralyzed state, so that he was able to stand up and walk, and walk away. This is not simply just a miracle of healing, although it is certainly that. But this was Christ's divine seal, if you will, that demonstrated to the people there, and especially those who doubted, that indeed he did have the authority to forgive sins because he was God and is God in the flesh. Most notably, he says, Rise, take up your bed and walk, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I think it's important there that we recognize that Jesus invokes this title, the Son of Man. I think so often we want Jesus in the Gospels to say, oh, just come out and say it, say it, come on, say it. I I am God in the flesh. I think if you read the Gospels closely enough, he's saying precisely that. But in this particular case, he invokes one of his most favorite titles for himself, to call himself the Son of Man. Why does he invoke this title? Well, in Old Testament nomenclature, in terms of the Old Testament significance of this term, it is loaded. If I were to liken it to a freight train, it would have one engine pulling many, many, many cars of significance. And in this particular case, and at this particular time in the first century, there were many first century Jews who looked to the Old Testament and the promises of the Son of Man that would restore Israel's, if you will, prime place in the world. Chief and foremost comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has this amazing vision of these beasts rising up out of the the sea. And the Ancient of Days pulls up, and then Daniel sees in this dream, he says, he saw one like a son of man. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says... The Son of Man does these things. I am the Son of Man. He is making a fantastic claim. He is saying, I have the authority to do this because I am the Son of Man. You know Daniel chapter 7? It's written about me. And just to appease Dr. Godfrey for when he gets back, where else does this title come from, the Son of Man? But Psalm 8. What is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him the dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever pass, passes along the paths of the sea. Daniel saw a vision of Psalm 8 upside down. The creature's were running rampant and had dominion over the earth. And it wasn't until the Ancient of Days came in, righted the world, and put the Son of Man, his Son, in charge of all of it. And now, Psalm 8 is righted again, and it's righted in Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. In other words, Mark is making the discreet point Someone greater than the temple is here. Earlier, the, the narrative just before it, Jesus heals the leper. When Jesus touches the leper, that is unthinkable according to Old Testament norms and Levitical law. You don't touch a leper. I know something of this because uh, many of the faculty members here within the last two weeks, when they found out that I had the swine flu, they didn't want to come into my office. In fact, some of them said, shouldn't you be walking around saying, unclean, unclean? That was sympathetic. Though I threatened them that if they didn't obey, that I would cough on them. The point is, is that Jesus doesn't contract defilement. What does he do? He imparts holiness and cleansing and forgiveness. Something greater than the law is here. In the narratives that follow, there's a conflict over the Sabbath. Jesus directs his disciples to go and eat, to Take little heads of grain and eat them. And long story short, that narrative ends with Jesus saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Someone greater than the Sabbath is here. Mark's discreet point is saying God in the flesh is here and he is here in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Which brings us, in a sense, full circle to those four zealous friends who were so desperate to place their paralyzed friend before their Lord and Savior. Because the text says they had faith. Well, beloved, that I believe is where we come in, in a sense. That is what you are preparing yourselves for here in your seminary education. You are preparing yourself so that with God-given faith and a zeal that knows no obstacles, and that is willing to try as hard as you can to place people before the Son of Man so that they too can know of the forgiveness of sins and know one day that they too shall be restored soul and body.
That is why you are here. That is why you are training. That is why you are studying. Don't forget it. All of those books that you have to read and all of those papers that you have to write, it's not just information. You are learning about the triune God as he has been revealed in the Son of Man, the only one who has the authority to forgive sins and to heal us, body and soul. So my prayer for you this semester, and I hope it is your passion and your zeal, is that by your God-given faith, you would know of no obstacles and you would do whatever you can to place those who are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ before our Savior so that they too might know of the forgiveness of their sins and the redemption that can only come through him, the Son of Man. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are grateful that indeed you have placed your Son over all things, that you have raised him from the dead and you have placed all things under his feet, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. We pray, O Lord, that uh, our conduct would reflect this grand truth, that we would reflect the authority of the Son of Man. And so we pray that in this way that our studies this semester uh, would be done unto you and to your glory and in the service of King Jesus. We pray that you would even prick our hearts, O Lord, for the lost that we know around us, whether they be friends or family. We pray that you would give us a zeal and a passion to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are in desperate need. For indeed, even though this man was paralyzed, O Lord, it was but in one sense a symptom of his greater need for the forgiveness of his sins. Indeed, O Lord, how often we can see that there are so many problems in this world and we can rank them accordingly, but we fail to recognize that the greatest problem in this world is sin. Help us, we pray, to present the only solution to that problem, to this world in need, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a zeal and passion for this truth. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.